how would I pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what you've done amongst us uh, over this last 12 months. We thank you for your grace and mercy in the midst of a very difficult year. We thank you uh, for our partnership in the gospel. We thank you that we, uh, at the moment, enjoy safety. We pray for our country, please, that, um, or particularly the East Coast. We pray for safety for uh, people, uh, for rescue workers in the midst of a, a very great and serious flood. Um, Lord, we pray, though, in all of that, that you might cause people to pause and reflect about you, our fragility of life, our need for salvation. We pray that for tonight, that as we look at these scriptures, you might work amongst us by your Spirit and do something wonderful amongst us, we ask tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you tonight about the love of God, God who is love. And I want to do that because uh, the passage that we're looking at tonight has within it a verse that um, is one of the most important verses in the Bible, one of the most popular verses in the Bible, the Bible, Bible verse that talks about love. Uh, it starts with the whole idea of love, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It is an incredibly famous verse. Um, you, there might, you might not have known this, but once upon a time we had Olympics every four years. Uh, and it used to be the case uh, many Olympics ago that for quite some Olympics, you would always, as the 100 metre sprint was on, uh, the cameras would zoom down to the starting blocks where everyone was kind of lining up. And behind them, for many Olympics, there would be someone with a sign saying John 3.16. And that's, they just wave it because they knew the world was watching. And it was that kind of, uh, kind of series of letters and, and numbers that said something to our world because it was so well known, John 3.16. Uh, sports uh, men particularly uh, put it on their arm sleeves, many of them, that, you know, they'll have a little thing to mum, mum, I love you. And on the other thing, they'll have John 3.16. You see, it's a very popular verse, a very well-known verse. And there's a reason for it. It's been called by a Christian many hundreds of years ago, a man called Martin Luther, it's been called the heart of the Bible. The gospel in miniature. You know, the, God has given us 66 books of the Bible. It's a massive work that he's given us to explain what he's doing, what he's about, who he is. And if you boil it all down, says Martin Luther, John 3.16 has it. It's the heart of the Bible... The gospel in miniature. Here is the, if, if you hate studying, here's the cheat sheet. I mean, this is the way to get a quick handle on what the Bible's all about, what Christianity's all about. Um, and here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You see, it speaks of the heart of God towards us, what he's done for us, what we need to do to be saved. It's all there. The richness of what the Bible, what God has to tell us. And the way it's put actually orientates us really well in that it, it starts the first few words there in John 3.16, for God so loved. That's where it starts, with the love of God, which is the real driver for the gospel message to our world. And it's, it's a mind-blowing, astonishing thing to say, that God loves. And he loves in a way that's truly amazing. Uh, 
you know, it's, it's the case that you can understand something and then really understand it and then really, really understand it. You know, that's been the case for me over 35 years about the love of God. I got it. I heard it. It was, it was amazing. But as the years have gone on, I really get it. And then I really, really get it. And I find myself every month getting it just a bit more. The love of God is truly amazing. God so loved that he gave his only son. You know, this verse uh, has, I'm going to suggest, two pieces to it which tell you how much God loves. It's got one piece that we're fairly familiar with, though it, we, we're going to spend just a moment on it again and we need to spend our lives on it again, of course. Um, but it's got another piece that we're not as familiar with in this verse. And I want to particularly focus on that. The piece that we're familiar with, I trust, is that God's love is demonstrated in the fact that he gave his only son. This is the kind of love that God's got. The kind of love that means he gives his only son. He sacrifices that which is most precious to him. His son, his only son, to be uh, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, the one who dies in our place as a substitute under God's wrath that we might be forgiven. He gives his son up to death like that. Now, I've got four kids and if it came to it, uh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but if it came to a choice between saving you and saving those four kids that I've got, and I've got a new grandchild in the mix of all of that as well, but if it came to saving those four, you and, and those four kids, I'm going to save my four kids every time. Sorry to disappoint you, all right? Um, it, you know, they're mine. I'm, I, I have that towards them. Now, you might say to yourself, man, you've got four of them, one plus three spares. Why don't, you, you know, why don't you just kind of dump off three and at least keep one? Um, yeah, which one? You probably have an idea about that. But, um, <laughs> friends, God so loved with such a kind of love that he gave his only son. You got a bunch of them, you give one of them. But God only had one. And his love was the kind of love that he gave up his only son that we might be forgiven, that we might have life. This is love. This is what love is. This, is. this is truly love, says John in his letter. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice of atonement. That's love, says John. Now, we instinctively understand this. I think that love is seen in the price that you pay. Love is not really love when there's no cost to it, there's no sacrifice to it, that's just sentimentality. Um, but love, we appreciate, you know, it kind of, <laughs> again, sorry to say this to you, but um, the love of a new married couple, you know, that's lovely to see and so on, but it's young love, it's just, it's, it's great and wonderful. But I tell you what, the love of a couple who have been through thick and thin together, who have lived through the ups and downs of hurt and pain and stood by each other through decades, to continue in love after that history now, that's love. And pray God that those of you who are married will marry, come to enjoy that. But a love that's sacrificial, that's love. You know, this truth, the love of God, that God is a God who loves, dropped like a bombshell in the ancient world because the world of the ancient world was a world full of pagan gods, Greek mythology and so on, and they don't love. They didn't love humanity. Humanity was a plaything. Humanity were toys. 
they went about their own little things with humanity on the side. It was new and fresh and unheard of in the ancient world that God is a God who loves us. Now, I lay these foundations, but I, I want there's the one piece you see about the love of God seen in the sacrifice of His only Son for us. But there's another piece which I suggested earlier we're not so familiar with. But it's crucial if we want to understand this verse and the power of God's love and be impacted by it. And this other piece is seen when you understand the meaning of the word world. Do you see it there in verse 316? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now it might seem odd to you to kind of, I mean, I know what the world means. What, what do you mean, what does it mean? Well, well, firstly, it doesn't mean the, the world of rocks and trees and the ocean and the birds and dolphins and stuff like that. It doesn't mean the inanimate world, the animal world. It means the world of humans. There's the first thing to notice about that word. It's, uh, whenever John uses it, he's referring to the world of humanity, to people. For God so loved humanity, the world. But what does he mean by the world of humanity? What's he saying about the world when he uses that word? Um, what kind of people is he talking about? You see, when we think about the world, humans, what do we think of them? How do we think about them? Now, I suspect that it's easy to be tempted to imagine it's no big deal to say that God loves the world. Sure, it's not perfect. Sure, we've failed in so many ways, but it's trying. The world is wanting to be better. The world's kind of lovable, isn't it? And God wants to love the world. That's a good thing. Of course he would. Of course he'd love us. The world is a place where people aren't, they trying to fight evil. The world is a place, surely, where we see people wanting justice and equality. We're not perfect, sure, but to us, it feels like we're still, you know, we're okay. And so there isn't much to be learned in our minds from those first words of verse 16, for God so loved the world. It's just sort of a word we move past pretty quickly. Of course he did, we imagine. He made us, he ought to love us. But in all of that thinking, we've lost something profound about the meaning of this verse. And that's why I want to focus on the meaning of the word world. Now, just, just to say, this is not academic. This is not just a purely academic exercise. It's crucial in, in helping us see ourselves. It's, it's crucial in us appreciating God's love for us. And it's, it's crucial in understanding why it is we come to this God and how we can be secure in this God. There's a lot that hangs on understanding this word world. So with all that in, in mind, let me uh, dig through it with you. And I'm gonna, actually, just to say too, I'm going to have a question time at the end because I'm going to raise some big things and, uh, and heck, it's raining, you can't leave. So we'll be here for a while. Um, but uh, So if things come to mind as we go through, keep them in mind. I want to I focus particularly on verse 18, 19 and 20 to help us understand the world. Let's look at verse 18. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son 
Now, notice the tense of condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. What's being said here is that the world is already under condemnation. That Jesus comes into a world that was already in a bad way, that it was already under condemnation. It wasn't neutral. Jesus, verse 17, doesn't come to condemn that world because it already was condemned. You see, verse 17, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, which implies it needs saving. And that's just, uh, just reflect on that for a moment. Um, the fact that Jesus comes before the very end tells you that the reason he came was to save. If God sent his son to condemn the world, it would have been the, why not just end things, finish things up and bring it to the great day of judgment. The fact that the father sends the son prior to the end of judgment tells you he's here for another reason to rescue people from the judgment to come. Now, in his coming, he reveals judgment and condemnation. We'll come to that in a moment. But he comes to a world that's already condemned. He comes to that world to save that world. That's his plan. And the key now is verse 19. This is the verdict. This is the pronouncement. This is the way things are. That light, Jesus, has come into the world, the world that stands under condemnation. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Here's the verdict, here's the judgment with the one who has the authority to make the judgment. That light has come into the world but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to be in the light, they didn't want to have the light come because they wanted to live in the dark where they weren't exposed. Have you ever had that experience where you go into the kitchen and you turn on the lights at night, there's darkness, you turn on the lights, suddenly the lights go on and there's little creatures that scurry off into the distance. You ever had that experience? Never in our house, but I know some of you have had that experience in your house. It, in our house, it's, well, they were little children often that scurried off when you turn the light. But um, do, do you know, there's a sense in which uh, what's being said here is that people want to live a certain way and the way they want to live is the kind of way that doesn't want to be shown to others. Th their deeds were evil and they don't want the lights on to be seen for what they're doing. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. There's a kind of lifestyle that's better lived at night. That you want to live in dark, you want to live in the bedroom with the curtains closed and the lights turned off. There's a kind of life you want to live in the dark because you don't want people to see it. And this verse, the verdict is that our world is a world which likes darkness because it wants to live in evil. Now, there is an exception to this in verse 21. Uh, there are those who do live by the truth who come into the light, um, but that exception proves the point that's being made in that those who live by the truth, verse 21, who come into the light, come into the light so that, you see the end of verse 21, so that it may be plainly seen that what they've done has been done in God. Now, that's the literal, literal Greek. Our NIV is added the word sight. In verse 21, you can see that there, the word sight is not in the Greek. Uh, the Greek just simply says, done in God. And uh, what does that mean? Uh, I take it what it means is that what they've done may be seen to be done by the power of God, by the strength of God, in union with God. And so... What verse 21 tells you is that 
there are a people, a kind of person who actually does love the light, the truth, but it's only because God's already worked in them. It's not their natural state. Humanity by nature loves darkness because we want to live a life where we're not seen. Now, in some contexts, this truth about humanity is easier to see. In some cultures, the verdict that people loved darkness because their deeds were evil is easier to see. It's a little bit less easy to see today, though it is true of us. I'll come to that in a moment. But I want to go with the easier one and show you what's been the case in history. Now, as I say this, I just want to warn you, I'm going to become... I'm going to say some things that are politically incorrect. And, and I've thought about it. I, the reason I want to do that is because if we don't sometimes break the politically correct mould, we end up being forced to tell the story, the narrative, according to the way secular people want it told. And as soon as we, we allow that to happen, we enter into the discussion about the truth of Christianity with one arm tied behind our backs. Because if we can only tell it the way that they want it told, the politically correct way, there's a whole raft of truth that won't be brought to light. And so I'm going to take the risk, and here's why we might have a question and answer time, and say some politically correct things. Here, here it is, I'll give you the headline, but I'm going to demonstrate it. The headline is this, um, some cultures in history are better than other cultures. The politically correct thing to say is that no culture is better than another because to say one culture is better than another would offend those people in those cultures. The politically incorrect thing is that no, there are some cultures that are better than other cultures. Now, let, let me just give a couple of things. This is not a comment on skin colour. This is not about white people and coloured people. Not, it's got nothing to do with skin colour, what I'm about to talk to you about. Um, and it's not saying our culture is not in the dark. But the point is, not all cultures are equal. All cultures aren't equal. And let me give you some examples of this. Pre-Western civilization, before the coming of Christianity, think with me about Rome, ancient Rome. In Rome, it was a form of birth control that was accepted broadly to expose your newborn infants to the elements until they died. It was normal practice, accepted practice. If you didn't want a child, you'd put them outside until they died. In uh, some Greek cities, uh, if the child was in some way inferior, didn't have the strength to be a warrior, you would expose it on the hill and leave it to die. And it was a state-sanctioned thing. The pattern... Uh, in these ancient Roman settings was an abuse of women. It was rife. There was, of course, the love of a husband towards a wife. We have letters from the ancient world where husbands talk very affectionately about their wives. That is certainly true the case. But there was no controls in the ancient world on the abuse of men over women. You know, we've got a wonderful circumstance. See, here's, here's a where I want to affirm our culture. We've got a wonderful situation where women are standing up and saying, enough, enough about the way men are treating women. And, and we're, we're in a setting where we, 
we can affirm that and hear that and seek to act on it. The ancient world had none of that. Rape was accepted as a right of the powerful. Now, we have rape in our culture, but we have noise against it. We have critique of it and judgments and law courts. None of that. The evidence that you were a powerful man was that you took to whoever was lower down the socioeconomic ladder and raped them. Child abuse was accepted. Slavery was part of the world. Ethnic cleansing was just a given. And there was a love of violence. You may have seen the movies about the arena and the gladiators and so on and so forth. You know, some of that was paid uh, you know, men fighting each other. Um, some of it was criminals who were condemned uh, to, to uh, punishment, a capital, form of capital punishment. And all of that's not the issue. The issue is that that was a form of entertainment. The, the Roman culture actually saw that as natural and good and a place you'd take your kids on a Saturday afternoon. So criminals would be put in, or Christians were put to, and, and wild animals were introduced to the arena to tear them apart. And you would go there as a celebration, like we'd take our kids to the footy, we'd take them to the arena. Now think with me, what kind of culture celebrates violence like that? Has it as a normal part of their life? It would not be a place where I'd want my daughters to grow up. Elsewhere, in other countries in the ancient world, there was the, the practice of killing the widow when a man died. So the husband dies and the wife is forced to be thrown onto the funeral fire. It was normal practice in some cultures. The Incas, I read just recently that uh, we've excavated a site where... Um, there was a sacrifice made of children, 140 at one time, to change the weather patterns. This was common practice in Inca culture. Racism was rife in that culture, as in with all ancient world. It was accepted that some were superior to others. You see, all of this, when you go pre-Christian, you can see the world is in darkness. It, 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 its deeds were evil. Now, there was some light. God, chapter 1 of John, was moving in the world to bring light in some fashion in all kinds of different settings and contexts, but it was darkness in large measure. And that's the world Jesus comes into, a world of darkness where evil is given free reign. Now, I, I use those examples because it's a little bit harder to see in our cultural context, but I'm going to prove it's the case here as well. Um, we are not immune from this testimony, this verdict, but it is harder to see because the Christian faith has brought things into the world that we don't appreciate. And I'm going to draw your attention to a couple of um, books. There's a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Not a Christian man, not a Christian book. Um, but he draws attention to a whole host of information through this, of course. But um, he, he draws attention to the fact that um, uh, mercy and pity were regarded as defects of character in the ancient world. Humans must learn to curb this impulse in the ancient world. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. Pity was a defect of character unworthy of the wise. And that was the moral climate into which Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues. 
Christianity came saying the very opposite, that the merciful God requires humans to be merciful and that God loves humanity and therefore we ought to love one another. This was a radical new idea in the ancient world. We take it for granted. We take for granted that we ought to care for the needy. We ought to care for the weak, the impoverished. The ancient world knew none of that. The Christian faith has brought something astonishing into our world and shaped our culture. There's a, um, there's a man called Robbery Wood, Robert Woodbury, Robert Woodbury, a sociologist. And uh, he, he put himself to research the impact of Christian missionaries on our world. And he started with the assumption that missionaries were bad. That if you take a missionary into a primitive culture, um, the culture that was free and flourishing uh, and full of joy and gladness would be destroyed by the missionaries. That was the kind of prevailing thought that he brought to the whole exercise. But what he discovered over 15 years of research into this area is that the very opposite was the case. He says when missionaries who he calls conversion Protestant missionaries, that is missionaries who weren't just doing medical work but went to convert the pagan, went to win them to Christianity, so serious missionaries, if you like, well not the other missionaries, invalid of course, but um, the missionaries who were conversion missionaries, he says they did massive good. Now, now there were problems too. But he, get this, this is so radical for our world. He prepared a paper, a 30-page paper, presenting uh, his thesis. And he presented it to a peer-reviewed journal. And uh, the, the editors of the journal struggled with his presentation and kept insisting that he give more evidence for this, more evidence for this, because surely this can't be the case. And in the end, he presented a 30-page um, uh, paper with a 192-page studied information and all the data and, and background stuff because they want it more and more and more. And he convinced people. And here's what he said. Countries where there were more missionaries who stayed longer and had more freedom to do their work created better health outcomes in the culture they were in, lowered infant mortality, lowered corruption, created mass education and provided the conditions to establish stable democracy. Did a work that actually meant Australia's like Australia is. And we find, he says, that the countries they left behind were better off. All of which says that cultures shaped by Christianity have much more light in them. And ours is one of those. Now, this is not about skin colour. It's not saying there's no darkness. But it is saying that much of what we're picked up through the playground, much of what we're picked up through the education system, needs to be rethought. The Christian message brings life and health. It brings light. But even our society, Western civilization is in the dark. Because what John is saying in verse 19, the verdict, is a verdict that applies to our culture as it does to every culture. Let me show you how this is the case. 
The verdict, verse 19, light has come into the world but people love darkness because their deeds are evil, was said of Israel. Just let that sit. It wasn't said of Rome. Though it applied to Rome, it was said of Israel. A religious community who was seeking to obey the law, be moral, be respectable. And what was said of them was that they loved darkness because their deeds were evil. And the point that's being made here is a profound one. The darkness we love and the evil we do is not just immorality. It's true darkness and true evil. It's rebellion against God. At the very heart of evil is the idea that I don't need God, I can live my life my way and pursue my agendas and what I want to do without God. And that's the heart of evil. And I want to be in the dark so that I can continue to pursue that light, that life. I want to be able to continue to live in my rebellion, my betrayal of God, my independence from Him, and I don't want the lights turned on that it might be seen how I've been using God all of this time. I don't want someone coming and showing me that there is a God that I owe everything to, who has given me life and breath and everything. I don't want the lights turned on to that. I want them off so that I can keep living in the dark, keep using the thing God gives me without paying attention to the giver. And here's the problem, Jesus comes into our world and he came into the Jewish world. And see, here it goes. Um, It's possible to use religion as a cloak to keep yourself in the dark. It's possible to use religion to keep God out, which just seems absurd. But that's what many Jews did. They created a form of religion so that they could continue to believe and justify their actions as being for God, but really hiding from Him. Now, how is this evidenced? Well, when the light comes, what did they do with the light, Jesus? They crucified Him. Chapter 1. The true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. They believed in God, they claimed to love God, but when God comes in the flesh, they reject God. Because they didn't want to be exposed. Let me dig into this just a touch more. You see, how did this exposing work of Jesus function? How did it happen that he brought the light? Well, I think it's there in verse 11. Have a look at verse 11. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Now, just notice how often Jesus uses the language of testify, testimony, speak. Jesus doesn't just come and live. He speaks. He teaches, he testifies, and that's where it all goes wrong. Do you know, the person of Jesus is beautiful. He he loved women, men, he held them up as uh, equal together, he affirmed, and you look on that and you say, he's a wonderful man. 
It was all going great until he opened his mouth and began to testify and began to say things like, God's the landlord who's made the vineyard and put you in it and now expects rent from you and you've paid no rent, you've killed his prophets, you've killed his son. He puts his finger on their sin. He then speaks about himself as God's very son as the one who is the way, the truth and the life, that no one comes to God except through him. He says that humans need to be born again, that sin is so pervasive. He says these things that are so true, but confronting and offensive to a world that wants to live in the dark. He comes pointing us to God as our owner, when I want to live independently of that God. He comes speaking of judgment. I don't want to know about ju- judgment for me, a religious person. It's when he testifies and tells the truth. And let me translate that into today. You know, in our world, we don't practice child sacrifice anymore. We kill our unborn infants, but we can pat ourselves on the back that we don't have child sacrifice anymore. And we care about equality and so on, but we can have a Grammy Awards ceremony last week with Cardi B and uh, that other lady whose name is, none of you saw this, is that right? Um, is it is it WAP, the song? WAP? What is it? No one knows? Let me talk, yeah, what is it? I'm going to make a fool of myself for not knowing exactly what it is. But the Grammy Awards, which is beamed into everybody's houses, Two women on stage simulate sex and it's, it's applauded publicly as empowering to women, as empowering women to be free, to be who they want to be. Whereas actually it's perverse and it's degrading and it's demeaning of women. And at the very same time we're applauding that, we're banning books, Dr. Zeus, which are trite and trivial. We are a world heading into darkness more and more as we cut ourselves off from the light that Jesus has brought into our culture. You know, we have a love of what that is good, equality, justice and so on, but we are firmly in the dark because we're still firmly determined to keep God out of our world, out of our lives. And Jesus... Everyone I know loves Jesus, thinks Jesus is a great moral man. Until you point out what he says, until you draw attention to his testimony, his teachings, what he taught us, and that's the point at which everything goes bad. When When you draw attention to his diagnosis of the human heart, the perversity of sin in our lives, how God is our God and there's no hope except to come before him and bow the knee, when he talks about new birth and sin being pervasive and so on, when he comes turning the lights on by his testimony, people close him off because they want to live in the dark. You know, people in our world might claim that we only reject the Christian faith because there's a lack of evidence. I can't believe the Christian faith because it doesn't ring true. 
But John 3, verse 19 and 20 says the reason people don't come to God is not an intellectual thing, it's a moral thing. We don't want our lives to be changed. We don't want to come under the Lordship of God. I want to live in the dark to live the way I want. And it's not an intellectual problem I have with the Christian faith, actually it's a moral problem. There are no great intellectual critiques of Christianity. We've been looking at it for centuries. There's no great intellectual critique. There's no contradictions to the evidence. There's no lack of evidence. The problem is moral. To come to Jesus to, is to come under him. It's to come into the light and face the truth about who I am and what I'm like and who God is and I just don't want that. I want to stay in the dark. This is a profound diagnosis of the world we live in and all of this leads us to see that when John talks about the word world this is what he means by it it's the world of darkness it's the world that wants evil it's not neutral and so if you plug that word into John three sixteen, for God so loved that world for God so loved this world, the world of darkness that wants to betray God, reject God, live in rebellion to God, be opposed to God, a world that's already under judgment. And John 3.16 says God still loves that world, so much so that he gave his only son for it. And his coming as bringing the light merely revealed the hostility that was already there. And this is a deeply distressing diagnosis. It's depressing about the world. So why do it? Well, it's worth doing because it helps us appreciate the wonder of the love of God. And so the wonder of what it means to receive that love. Let me give you an illustration. This is an illustration from Don Carson. It's an illustration I've used a number of times before. I'm sorry about that, but I, I do find it really a helpful one and I hope it's helpful for you. What Don Carson does, he's an author, a Christian author, he, he pictures a young couple walking together along the beach at sunset. It's a beautiful romantic evening, the, the, no rain, <laughs> no wind, uh, the sun's setting. Um, and they're walking along hand in hand and the man turns to the woman and gazes deeply into her eyes and says, I love you. And Carson asks this question, he says, what do you think he means when he says, I love you? He says, does he mean this? He most likely means this. He means, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile makes a room light up and it knocks me out from 50 metres away. Your humour is captivating, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, it just grabs me. Everything about you transfixes me, I love you. That's probably what he means by the word, I love you. That she is so wonderfully lovable and he's captivated by her. And then he says this, he certainly didn't mean this. Quite frankly, you've got such bad breath that it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous you belong in a cartoon. Your hair is so greasy it could lubricate an 18-wheel truck. Your knees are so disjointed you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun look warm and friendly. 
but I love you. What Carson says is, he almost certainly doesn't mean that. But what does John 3.16 mean? Does John 3.16 mean that God sees his world and our humour and our sparkling eyes and the scent of our hair and is captivated by us and so gives his son for us? No. John 3.16 means God sees our rebellion, our hostility, our evil, our hatred, the desire to live in darkness, that we are that person who is ugly and yet God still loves so much that he gives his only son. The point John 3.16, when understood properly, is making is that there's nothing lovable in us. The wonder is that God is a God of love who can love the unlovable. Let me apply this, then see if we've got time for questions. Why does this matter? First, it tells you about the seriousness of unbelief. To continue to reject this God is to push away of God who is your only hope. Second, it tells the power that draws us to be believers. You see, most of us in our honest moments actually look into our lives and realise there's a lot about me I don't want anyone else to see. There's a lot about what I do in the dark that I hope no one ever discovers. And I'm not sure God could have me. John 3.16, when understood rightly about the word world, means that he'll have anybody. He'll have you exactly as you are. Because he loves the world, you, in exactly the place you're in. Hostility godlessness, evil. He's the God who loves the unlovable. So you are in a place, I'm in a place where he's a God I can come to. Let me give you thirdly, all of this matters for your security as a Christian. Can you imagine being that woman, the second woman, the woman with such bad breath and greasy hair and ugly personality, can you imagine that woman wanting to have a relationship with a man? Not that she needs to, but she, she wants, she's fallen in love with another, this man. Can you imagine how she would feel seeing herself? I have no hope. I have no hope of relationship with this one. If he ever discovers what I truly am like. But can you imagine her having a man embrace her and swear deep love to her, knowing everything about how horrible she is, and mean his love for her, and say that I will love you forever, knowing exactly who you are. That's what this verse is saying. God sees the inner you, the true you, the you that you only are just starting to get to know, the you that you are deeply ashamed of 
God sees it. He sees what you're afraid to show other people. And he says, I love you. I'll have you. I've sent my son to die for you. And if I've done that for you while you were my enemy, how much more will I do all things now that I've reconciled you to myself? So this is a wonderful truth for your security. God's love is so strong and so determined, he will hold you to himself through all your ups and downs. You see how it's important to see what the word world means? It's not that God sees your inner princess and is captivated by you. You haven't got an inner princess. He's the God of love. Now, this doesn't mean your life ought not change. You ought to change. Verse 21, you ought to now be someone who lives in the light, who has been loved by God to be brought to born again, to be new birth. 1 John chapter 1, God is holy, He is light. You ought to now be someone who is born again to be in the light and bring all that you are to Him, not afraid anymore. To see Him cleanse and purify you and transform and change you. You ought to be able to be the person now who can come to him with confidence that he won't reject you when you discover other things about yourself. Bring it all and confess it because he is faithful and just and will forgive you all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1. Brothers and sisters, to understand John 3.16 properly is a great gift. It's the Bible in miniature, the gospel in miniature. It's a message of a God who loves in a way that no other, no one else is loved. And it empowers you to live a life that is profoundly different. Now I'm going to pray and then we'll see if there are any questions. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you so much for the astonishing revelation of your love for us. We thank you for this incredible gift that you have so loved the world, the world of hostility and rebellion and evil that you have given us your son. Please help us think deeply on this and be captivated by what we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you want to ask anything? It's okay if not, but... And you want to pick up? Oh, yep. Robert Woodbury. Robert Woodbury? That was an easy question. <laughs> what was the name of the bloke who wrote the book? I'll give you that one too, Rodney Stark. Anything else? All clear? Yeah. Yes. When I say some cultures are better than others, do I think they're morally superior or just... Morally favourable or superior. I would offer that the word superior relies on a context to make sense of it. So superior morally is morally favourable. Um, and so, yes, I'm saying that. I, I'm, I'm saying... My, I, would, I would rather my daughters grow up in one culture and not another, which I would say means it's superior to the other culture. Now, superior in every way, no. 
So Asian cultures are all over us in the way they honour and respect older people in their society. But that comes with a dark shadow where it becomes oppressive and tyrannical over the children. <laughs> and so every, you know, every culture's got its ups and downs, but I would say those cultures shaped by the Christian message, by the Christian faith, are better to live in. Yeah. I want my children and my, my daughters to live in this one, not that one. No, I want this one to be better. And I'm not saying it's not in the dark. It's in the dark in a very profound way. It's getting darker as the years are going on. Um, we're not better people. Than, that, that's another thing perhaps to... Yeah. We are not better people than people in the Romans. We are just as sinful. It's just we're living in a public environment that has certain protections around it that mean I have a better chance of living together because the Christian faith is so shaped. See, see the, the, the fact that we have right, human rights is a product of Christianity. The fact that we have hospitals is a product of Christianity. The, the, the fact that we have welfare is a product of Christianity. These things are all profoundly good things. Yeah. All right, we finished there.